Good evening, and a warm welcome to the service this evening. Uh, those here in the building and those who are, who are watching uh, online, we come together uh, to worship God. John McSween will come up to the uh, lectern here and lead us in prayer in Gaelic, please. Gallavroy, 
Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that uh, you are the vine. We thank you that you call us to be branches, to be those who are connected to you. And we thank you that when we believe in you, Lord Jesus, we are connected to you. Uh, you bring us into a relationship with you where uh, we're saved from our sin and we're saved uh, to be useful to you, to be fruitful. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, this is something that we cannot do on our own. It's something that uh, we can only do as we're close to you. We pray that you'd forgive us. We know sometimes we can drift away from you. Sometimes uh, we can let people and things get in the way of our, our relationship with you and we, we stop being useful. We thank you, Lord, that... Uh, if we are to live lives that please you, and if we are to live lives where we can bring uh, fruit, where people will be able to see Jesus through us, we, we have to stay close. So help us, we pray. 
uh, to be connected uh, to you always and to know your presence and to know your strength uh, every day and every hour. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could turn now in your Bibles, please, to Esther chapter 1. And we'll uh, begin uh, a series tonight just looking at this uh, book. Hopefully, probably take a chapter a night and uh, work our way through part of it, uh, if not all of it. And I won't do an introduction and go through history and um, the writer and all that kind of thing. Uh, it's not all that clear exactly when it was written. It's not all that clear uh, who wrote it either. There's various uh, theories. Uh, but uh, we know that God the Holy Spirit um, inspired this book to be, to be written. And uh, we, can, uh, we can study it and know that it's useful uh, for teaching and for reproof and for encouragement and uh, for rebuke, etc. So uh, let's read this uh, chapter of God's word, Esther uh, chapter 1 and at verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Some of your Bibles will say Ahasuerus, uh, which is the uh, Hebrew name for Xerxes. Uh, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material, uh, to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of poffer, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one a different, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when, the king, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs uh, who served him, uh, Mehuman, uh, Bistha, uh, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagath, Abagatha, Zether and, and Carcass, I don't think their names, any, anybody thinking about babies should take it into consideration. Um, these characters, uh, they were commanded uh, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law, and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied, in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. 
for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan uh, proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, so to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Amen. And we'll pause the story there. Uh, we pray that God will add his blessing to his word. If you could turn back now, please, to Esther chapter 1. And let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, once more for your word. And we pray once more uh, for the help of the Holy Spirit as we study your word. We recognize that this is a, a story from long ago. Uh, and it's told about a culture that's in some ways far removed from ours. Uh, in terms of geography, uh, we are uh, very distant from everything that we read. Um, but we pray that uh, you would speak to us through your word. Your word is relevant. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, all that you have to say to us this evening. Uh, speak to us, Lord, about who you are. Speak to us, Lord, uh, about who we are and how much we need you. And uh, give to us uh, uh, that help of the Holy Spirit. And again, Lord, we pray for your strength. Again, uh, we pray for your comfort. Uh, as we think about the days ahead of us in this week, uh, we we pray, Lord, uh, that you would uh, be very near to us. And again, Lord, we, we leave with you and Gasalik and, uh, and the family as they and as we as a church and as a community uh, feel that sense of loss and that grief uh, for Ina, who's passed now from time into eternity. Uh, minister, Lord, your comfort uh, to us in the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, uh, give to us, Lord, we pray uh, once more the, the, the joy even uh, of uh, the truth uh, that is proclaimed in the gospel, uh, that we are here in this world just, just for a short while, and then there is eternity. And we thank you that eternity, uh, when we are in Christ, is a place of uh, such uh, joy, such perfection, uh, a place uh, which is far more than our finite minds can grasp, uh, but a place uh, that we long for in our spirits, a place where Jesus has prepared uh, uh, a special area for all uh, who love him. So enable us to be those who are, who are uh, trusting Christ, loving Christ, uh, and uh, with Jesus in time, uh, knowing that uh, we will be with Jesus uh, for eternity. So speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some nights, and uh, we may be out in the car, or some days even, when we can be out in the car, heading from uh, Harris to Stornoway. Some of you do it every day. And uh, there can be some days and it's crystal clear and the, the drive is beautiful uh, and the scenery is spectacular uh, and you're just um, transfixed with all the, all, all the beauty uh, at the roadside. And there can be other days 
and you see nothing. The cloud is low, uh, the, the drizzle, uh, like it is just now, is thick, uh, the mist might be down, uh, and you can see virtually nothing. You know the Clesium is, is, is somewhere up there uh, on the left, but you can't see it. There's no trace of it. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. We know it's there, even on the days when the, the, the mist is such that we can't see five foot in front of us. This morning when I, when I uh, was taking a walk uh, down the road, I, I glanced in the direction of Scalpy. I could see nothing of Scalpy, but I know it's there. I know it's present. I can see that from those who are sitting in the congregation tonight. And the first point uh, that we come to uh, as we approach the book of Esther, and uh, it's a recurring point. In fact, really all three of the points this evening are recurring points throughout the book of Esther. Uh, there's three things uh, that we learn uh, about God repeatedly in uh, this uh, uh, passage, in this book. And the first thing is uh, uh, we learn about the presence of God. And the second thing we see as we step through this chapter and as we step through the, the, the book is uh, uh, we learn about the power of God. And the final thing uh, we see this evening is uh, we, we give some thought to the providence of God. So first of all, the presence of God. Uh, we're taught about the, the presence of God uh, in uh, this book of Esther, in this first chapter. And yet, if we look for the name of God in chapter 1, you scan down uh, through the verses of chapter 1, which we just read, and if you, you, you look for the name of God or the name of the Lord, you won't find it. And if you step into chapter 2 and, and scan looking for the name of God, you won't find it. And chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, if you forensically go through each verse, searching for uh, the name of God in uh, these verses, right through this book, you won't find God's name once. Uh, we'll read repeatedly about uh, Xerxes uh, and, and Vashti. We'll, uh, we'll read her name as we have done. Esther will come into play in chapter 2 and following. Uh, Mordecai, Mordecai. Uh, Haman, who's the body. Uh, these are names that we'll become familiar with, uh, but not once in all of the book of Esther is God's name mentioned. Lane, one of the commentators, uh, says nowhere is God mentioned uh, or even hinted at, uh, at any of the ten, in any of the ten chapters of the book. There's no mention of prayer, of sacrifice, no indication of praise or the quotation of scripture. And this is something that is highly peculiar in the, in the book of Esther. Uh, God, God, his name is, is, is just absent. Uh, God seems to be invisible, unseen, and yet he's there. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, uh, says, Although the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most conspicuously in every incident which it relates and that's the first thing we can note, and that's the first point we can take for our encouragement. Um, God is present, even when we can't see him. God is present, even when we can't see him. His presence is with us, even when we can't hear his name. There, there are countries in the world, and there always have been, uh, where the name of God is not allowed to be mentioned. This is a peculiar privilege that we have, where we're able to join together in the name of Jesus and worship. But there are many countries where uh, that's not permitted. Uh, prayer meetings against the law. Uh, worship services uh, cannot happen above ground. Christians cannot gain access to the country largely. And so we ask the question, is God absent from places like that? And the answer is uh, no, God is present. His name might not be heard. Uh, his people might not be easily seen, but God is there with them. And God is with us. Uh, we, we sang that in, in Psalm 46. 
And we, we, we hold on to that. God is with us. Uh, this country, Scotland, is uh, a country that was once known as the, the land of the book. But the book largely is closed. Uh, the Bible is being removed consistently from uh, so many public places. Uh, the name of God is almost never heard in any reverent sense. Even in times of pandemic, uh, we listened to our own leaders in our own country. We, we wondered, uh, would, they, would they come to a place where they, would, where they would name the name of God in this extreme circumstance? And not once did we hear our first minister say, say anything. God's name was absent. Places of worship, if you look at the, the current trends, are, are being closed down rapidly. Uh, laws are being passed that make it very difficult for us to, to worship uh, Jesus uh, in a biblical uh, way, which is the only way. And we might ask the question, uh, where is God? Is God absent from this land? And the answer is no, he's not absent. Even though we, we cannot see him in the way that we once did, and even though we don't hear his name uh, in the way that we once did in this country, uh, God is still present. And if we take it down another level and think even about our own our personal lives, uh, there are times uh, in our lives that are difficult and we struggle and we pray and we feel sometimes like our prayers are, are not being answered. And there are times uh, when, like the psalmist, we, we wonder, is God with us? And the answer that comes so powerfully through in this book of Esther is yes. Even when we can't see him. Even when we don't hear his name. Even when everything around us seems to be so counter to his will. God's presence is, is with us. He is the God who is everywhere. And that's not just in the book of Esther. That's, that's throughout all, all, all of scripture. I think about Isaiah 43. God speaks to Isaiah. Uh, and he says to his people. When you pass through the waters. When you go through trouble. I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So do not be afraid. I am with you. The presence of God, he's with us. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So we can take the encouragement of this. As we approach the book of Esther, and as we step through the book of Esther, uh, we have, these, uh, we have this, this book that uh, impresses upon us uh, through the narrative that, that weaves uh, through 10 chapters, we have this recurring truth uh, that, that, that God is always with us. He's always working, as we'll, we'll see in a moment. God is with us. God's presence is with us, even when we can't see him, even when we can't feel him. And if we want to see the workings of that, you know, sometimes you can get an answer in maths, and you might have the right answer, but the, the teacher will say, let me see your workings. So I understand that you know this. If you and I want to see the workings of, of the, the truth that God is always with us, the place that we go to see that being worked out is Calvary. Because remember, as Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, as we sang in that last hymn, uh, God the Father turned his face away from the Son. On the cross, uh, Jesus felt the extremity of what it's like to be alone. And it was our sin that did that. 
It was my sin and yours that separated God the Son from his Father, and he did it for us. He suffered the the isolation, the separation uh, that our sin imposed on our behalf, so that if we are trusting in him, we can be assured uh, of the constancy of the presence of God with us. The first thing uh, we learn here uh, as we approach the book of Esther is uh, uh, we learn about the presence of God, the the abiding, constant presence of God. And again, I can't, I can't help but thinking of Ina in the hospital ward, uh, saying repeatedly in hospital, uh, even though she was struggling physically, even though she was going through Isaiah 43 territory, she knew the peace of God, she knew the joy of God, because she knew the presence of God with her. And that's what's promised to all uh, who are in Christ. So the first point is the, the presence of God. And the second point uh, we we come to as we uh, really step into the text now is uh, we learn about the power of God. And it's a strange kind of method through which we we learn about the the power of God. It really comes through by way of contrast. And uh, as the the book begins, if you just scan down the verses with me, um, we're introduced in the opening verses to a king. Uh, We're told his name. Uh, We're repeatedly told his name. He wants us to know his name. He's desperate that we'll know his name and remember his name. Uh, uh, His name in uh, Hebrew was Ahasuerus. uh, And in the Greek language, the easier pronunciation, uh, thankfully, is uh, is the the, the, the name Xerxes. And uh, uh, this is the king that we're introduced to. And he is desperate for the world to know uh, that he is powerful. He wants everybody to know that he is the most powerful man in the world. And in terms of global politics uh, back there and then, he was the most powerful ruler uh, of his day. Uh, None of his contemporaries came close to him. And so we read in verse 1 about Xerxes. Uh, He ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush, which is present-day Sudan, I think. It says in verse 2, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So if you uh, take out a map and if you look at uh, uh, that area of land, or if you step back into the history books and and look at the the kind of power that he had at that time, it was immense. And he is not humble in any way. Uh, He's desperate to show off. Uh, all the power uh, that, he, that he possesses. And he does that by, by putting on the, uh, this massive banquet. Uh, uh, these days, uh, we want people to know how great we are. We, we take the social media. They didn't have that back then. Uh, so he has to put on this massive conference, uh, this banquet thing. And so we re- read about that in verse 3 and following. It says, in the f- third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. And for a full 180 days, what's that, six months, uh, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So he has this six-month festival almost, uh, conference-type event. And then at the end of it, he has this seven-day celebration uh, that is just absolute decadence. It's extravagance in the extreme. And it's in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, verse 5. And it's for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Uh, The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material, the silver rings and marble pillars, 
They were couches of gold and silver and a mosaic payment of uh, poffer, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Uh, Gillian will be getting ideas for the, for the forthcoming wedding. Um, but uh, what, we're, what we're being told here is that this is just absolute luxury. And you could dig into the, the details of it. Uh, but what we're uh, being taught here is that the best of the best of the best, that's what was going on here. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. Uh, the royal wine was abundant. This was not cheap wine. This was the best wine, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man uh, what he wished. So it was a free bar, and people could drink as much or as little as they wanted, as much as, as, as likely to be the scenario. So what we see is, uh, this is just a, this is a huge event. Sixth month conference, political celebration. And all the rich and famous were wined and dined in this event. Uh, politicians and military leaders were, were, were pulled in and won over at this event. And uh, we asked the question, why did he throw this party? And uh, part of the reason he threw this party was to, to gather more support. Uh, he wants his empire to be even bigger. He wants to attack Greece. And so he, he wants to, 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 to get a, a larger uh, artillery, a, a bigger uh, army to be able to, to, to proceed on that uh, basis. And he wants to become even more powerful. That's part of the reason. Uh, he's trying to, to, to garrison support. But the, the main reason, I think, that Xerxes uh, wanted to throw this uh, amazing event was, that people, was so that people would look at him. And people would be impressed by him. And people would want to worship him and praise him. Archaeologists have uh, discovered various uh, pieces uh, from Persia at the time of Xerxes. And, and one of the, the, the sections of masonry that was discovered um, has this inscribed on it uh, by Xerxes' uh, uh, command, obviously. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big, far-reaching earth. So Xerxes is hungry for the praise and the worship of the people in his kingdom. And Xerxes, he thinks, so he's at least trying to get people to think uh, that he is all-powerful. He's trying to get people to, to, to believe that he is the one who has ultimate control. But as the next uh, section goes on to show, uh, he, he wasn't as powerful as he wanted people to believe. Um, because it seems that uh, uh, there's a couple of things he can't control. He can't control his temper, for one. And he can't control his wife to his great embarrassment and to the, 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 the panic of uh, uh, the civil servants. Uh, and so uh, that's where we're heading in the, the next section as uh, the story is told. But, but what's the author doing here? What is God the Holy Spirit doing as he, as he moves the pen of the writer? But what he's doing is he's showing us that ultimate power is not with Xerxes. Even though Xerxes' name is splashed over every... Uh, Every page, every chapter in this book, 28 times in, in, in the 10 chapters, Xerxes, 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 his name is everywhere. But even though his name is, is up in lights, uh, his power is, is not much. And what we are going to see as the book progresses is that ultimate power rests with the God whose name is not mentioned once. The author in this, uh, in this book is taking us uh, behind the stage to show us uh, that God is powerful all powerful 
And again, we can turn to Isaiah and, and uh, have that message pressed in further. Uh, think about Isaiah 40 and at verse 18. You don't need to, to go there just now, but uh, uh, the, the Lord speaks uh, through Isaiah and says, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. The power of God. Xerxes may have been king uh, for a short season, um, but he was nothing compared to the ultimate king, to, to King Jesus. And Alistair Begg, he makes some, uh, some observations uh, about uh, the difference between Xerxes uh, and Jesus. So let me just give you a few of his observations. Uh, uh, he, he makes the point, Xerxes has, has uh, dominion over 127 provinces. That was impressive. But Jesus, if we think about Psalm 2 verse 8, uh, has the nations of the world as his inheritance. The ends of the earth are his dominion. There's no comparison. Xerxes uh, has a, a throne and the military leaders and the, uh, the, the princes and the nobles of the provinces of Persia and Media, uh, they come to see him. But when you think about Xerxes' throne and compare that to the throne on which Jesus sits, it's nothing. Revelation 21, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning. Uh, and the end. It's the words of Jesus, uh, the eternal God, the all-powerful God. And think about the banquet. Xerxes puts on a banquet. It's high-budget stuff. It's impressive in this world terms. It's a hundred and eighty days long, the finest affair. But Jesus' banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, you can read about it in in Revelation nineteen. Our, our time's gone, but uh, that's a banquet that will go on uh, forever. And in that banquet, uh, contrary to what we see in this banquet, uh, there's nothing sinful and nothing sad. No drunkenness, no tempers, no exploitation, no suffering, but perfect joy and perfect pleasure and uh, an endless peace. It's the banquet that, that King Jesus puts on. Here we see the power of God. And there's great encouragement, there's great uh, comfort in, in these truths as we, as we meditate upon them. And, uh, and that's what we should do as we, as we come through this book. Um, uh, what we have to see, uh, what uh, there is such a thrill in seeing, is that uh, King Jesus is far greater and far more powerful uh, than any other king, any other ruler, any other minister of politics, of royalty, whatever, at any time. King Jesus, and only King Jesus, is worthy of our praise and our worship. And so the, the question is, are we bowing before him? Are we giving him the, the glory and the, the praise that uh, he is due? So there's the presence of God. There's the power of God. And, and finally, uh, very briefly, uh, you can scan the, the, the second half of the chapter and we see the providence of God. Boys and girls, providence is just a big word for uh, what God does, what he allows to come into our lives, how he works. 
And so we see the providence of God. And if you uh, scan from uh, verse 10 onwards, uh, we see how the story goes. Uh, as Xerxes, as, uh, he comes to day seven of the, the banquet. Uh, he's had far too much wine that's gone to his head. And uh, he decides that now that he's uh, at the end of displaying the vast wealth of his kingdom, uh, he now decides in his, in his drunken uh, state, this is a good time to bring out his wife. She's the most beautiful uh, woman in, in the whole place. And so he, he sends this command. He says, bring her out so all the guys will see how beautiful my wife is. And it's all about him. It's all about his ego. It's all about his power. And so the command goes off to uh, summon Vashti to come out. And uh, uh, we want to cheer in uh, verse 12 because uh, Vashti uh, gets the, uh, the message. She says, I'm not coming. Tell him I'm not coming. And she, she won't budge which is the right thing to do. But Xerxes is furious. He's humiliated. And uh, all the civil servants then start to panic because they think, well, if uh, Vashti can say no to King Xerxes, my wife can say no to me and we can't have that. So they call on the lawyers and the lawyers drop some new laws, verse 20, to, uh, to force wives to respect their husbands as if that was possible. And Queen Vashti uh, is removed uh, from the position of queen. And it's a messy situation. It's an ugly uh, set of uh, events. Uh, it's, a, it's a sad story. But the amazing thing is, in the midst of all this, God is working. God's providence is, is rolling on. And you might say, well, does that mean that, that God is guilty here? Does that mean that God is uh, the author of all this uh, sin? And the answer to that is no. Uh, we are responsible uh, when we sin and when we act in a way that's harmful, just as they were in this situation. But the truth is, uh, it's the same truth that Joseph learned in his life. What, what may be intended uh, for harm uh, by sinful men, uh, God can use for good in his uh, mysterious uh, providence. And again, if we want to see the, the supreme example of that, we go back to the cross once more. What happened there? Well, we read the narrative. And we see that sinful men determined that they would not trust Jesus, they would not bow before Jesus, but that they would crucify him. And they would be held responsible uh, for their sin. Peter says that in the, in the um, sermon on Pentecost, is Acts 4. You crucify Jesus, he says. It's your sin, it's your guilt. But we know that in the midst of, of that most evil scene, Jesus is going purposefully to the cross to be our saviour. It's mysterious, but God is working. It's beyond our comprehension, but God is working. And so chapter 1 ends as Vashti steps back and God moves Esther into a position where she will be used to save God's people. And she didn't know that. And God's people didn't know that they needed saving at this point because they weren't yet in danger. But God knew that. And God is putting his people into place. Uh, so that he can work out his purpose. Uh, the, the providence of God uh, was at work. And that too uh, should be a comfort to us. If we are God's people. That God is weaving his purposes into uh, the providences uh, that we go through in this life. Even the difficult ones. Angus Alec reminded me of a, a poem uh, this week. And I, my time's long gone so let me just finish with it. it. speaks to us about the providence of God. It's called the weaver. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colours he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal 
are the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. The presence of God, he's with us even when we can't see him. The power of God, he's with us even when we can't feel him. In the providence of God, he's always working, even and sometimes especially when we just cannot see what it is he's doing. So let's trust him. And I may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with us all now and evermore. Amen.